The History Channel original podcast. Theodore Roosevelt becomes, at 42 years old, the youngest president of the United States in history. Roosevelt could never have walked in the front door of the White House. The Republicans never would have nominated him for president. One of McKinley's closest advisors, Mark Hanna, thinks TR is an absolute maniac. He said that he would carry out the policies of deceased President McKinley, but he carried them out the way people carry out the garbage. From the History Channel, this is Making Teddy. I'm your host, Andre DeShields. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Theodore Roosevelt is inaugurated as president on September 14, 1901 the day William McKinley dies from his gunshot wound. It's the first year of a new century, and apart from the assassination, there's a feeling of great optimism across the nation. The last 40 years have seen tremendous economic growth, the expansion of American cities and a rising population. The United States is now the largest industrialized economy in the world. Khalil Gibran Mohammed is professor of history, race, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. This was a great era of immigration. One million European immigrants were arriving in the United States every year. The United States, once a more insular post-colonial nation, is now emerging as a global power. And Teddy Roosevelt's presidency brings new energy to Washington. Presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. There's a new spirit in the land, and there's a new spirit in the White House. And Roosevelt calls it the White House. It had been the executive mansion before that, but suddenly he named it the White House on a piece of stationery, and the White House it became. People in the country feel there's life and energy in this new youngest president. You've now got six boisterous kids in the White House, making lots of noise, having lots of fun, roller skating on the floors, bringing ponies up on elevators, putting snakes in the couches. Tweed Roosevelt is the great-grandson of Theodore Roosevelt. T.R. was unlike people of his generation. He was very interested in his children, and he allowed them to come running in in the middle of whatever he was doing. He had so much energy, he's always on his feet. He meets sometimes hundreds of people a day. He reads a book a day. I mean, even as a president, he reads a book a day. As Colonel Doug Dowd says... Roosevelt's energy is remarkable. He is a completely new style of president, opening himself and the White House to the public. Here's historian Clay Jenkinson. He set the world's record for the number of hands shaken on a single day in the White House. It was 8,000-some. It's part of the golden age of journalism that writers are taking on the social problems of the day, and he reads these things like catnip. 
And then the next thing you know, those people are in the White House. Then he has two hours every afternoon where he's exercising. It could be a wrestling match, a boxing match, a hike in Rock Creek Park. And his followers are just as fascinated with his family. Journalists feed on the stories he and his family generate, says historian Edward Kahn. He was the first really celebrity president of the United States. Newspapers couldn't get enough of what his daughter Alice was wearing or the pets that they were keeping in the White House. His oldest daughter, Alice, was a teenager in the White House. And she was a darling of the people. They called her Princess Alice. Alice Roosevelt is said to have quipped, If you don't have anything nice to say, come sit here by me. And T.R. uses his reputation as a reformer to shake up social norms both in and out of the White House. When Roosevelt was president, I think we have to remember how profoundly racist this country was. There were black codes, Jim Crow, the fundamental suppression of the black people and the black vote, and demonizing and belittling of African Americans in every possible way. There were still more than 140 lynchings per year in the United States. One of the first things he does, which in hindsight is quite remarkable, is he invites the most prominent African-American uh, at the time, Booker T. Washington, to have dinner with him at the White House. Roosevelt sees this as a moment to put his own mark on the race question by bucking the orthodoxies of white political leaders, both Republican and Democrat. Kathleen Dalton is the author of Theodore Roosevelt, A Strenuous Life. Booker T. Washington had a very large network of black Republicans who could deliver votes. And T.R. had federal jobs he could give to those people. So let's make a deal. Let's work together to keep blacks in the Republican Party and to do what we can to treat these people respectfully. The next day, the South castigated Roosevelt with very mean-spirited political cartoons. In the South, a black person sitting down with a white person at dinner. That was unheard of. Historian Edward T. O'Donnell. Roosevelt had violated a key principle of the racial etiquette of white supremacy and, and Jim Crow. And the blowback was just uh, tremendous. Senator Ben Tillman of Georgia said, Roosevelt has weakened white supremacy and we're gonna have to lynch a thousand black people in order to reestablish it. At the time, T.R. remarked, as things have turned out, I'm very glad that I asked him, for the clamor aroused by the act makes me feel as if the act was necessary. But he did not follow through on the clamor he created. Leroy G. Dorsey is professor of communication at Texas A&M University. Now, Roosevelt said, I'll invite Booker T. Washington anytime I want to. Well, he never invited him again. Roosevelt understood he would get reelected by making sure whites know that. He knew what the hierarchy was. We can't let him off the hook for simply saying that he didn't want to sacrifice the party's ability to get support from whites in the South. This was a tricky balancing act, but many white people, North and South, did not want more in the way of addressing race inequality. But wanted more from the Republican Party in the way of addressing class inequalities. As he was in his early days in the New York State Senate protecting the cigar makers, 
Roosevelt is committed to battling America's inequality. Over the decades, the chasm between the very rich, the wealthiest bankers and industrialists, and their workers has grown only wider. These inequalities are now beginning to shake the nation's foundations. The country's workers feel left behind from its growth and prosperity. Historian H.W. Brand says, T.R. knows he needs more leverage against big business if he wants to balance the equation. This was a time when business got beyond the control of government. And Roosevelt thought that needed to be rectified. So he said, if business is up here and government is down here, let's make government bigger so it can basically duke it out with business on its own level. The first conflict to emerge involves the railroads. Susan Bearfield, author of The Hour of Fate, explains. So just two months after Roosevelt took office, J.P. Morgan announces the creation of a railroad trust called Northern Securities. It was a combination of three railroad lines in the Northwest that covered an incredibly important part of the country. This trust creates a monopoly that can dictate prices and business practices. Roosevelt does not think this is fair, so he sues. The case makes its way to the Supreme Court and Roosevelt wins. It is the first time that a company as prominent as Northern Securities, a person as privileged as Morgan, has been held to account. It was really the first time that people felt like the president would not automatically take the side of business, of the capitalists, of the rich. But still, tensions are very high. It was so clear to working class people that they were not sharing in the vast wealth being made. So they started to take action. Emboldened and hoping for further gains, workers now dare to step forward. The next industry to be challenged is coal. There was a sense that workers should be treated fairly. Unions had been growing in power. And in the first year of Roosevelt's presidency, almost 150,000 coal miners go on strike. The nation in 1902 runs on coal. And so if coal suddenly becomes unavailable, the economy comes screeching to a halt. And in wintertime, people literally suffer. And so when they do go on strike in the spring of 1902, the Owners won't even meet with the union representatives. So there's a real standoff. And as winter looms into the fall, Roosevelt realizes he has to tackle these problems. It's a different world, and we need to make very significant adjustments to that new world, or our democracy is going to go over a cliff. The coal industry is rich, powerful, and not eager to make concessions. Cecil E. Roberts is international president of the United Mine Workers of America. In 1902, the coal industry was the biggest industry fueling the economy of America. The owners of the mines became rich beyond belief, but coal miners were living in poverty. There were no laws to protect against child labor. They were getting sick from black lung, being killed in astronomical numbers. So many miners wanted to change what was going on in these mines. While Roosevelt is trying to decide what to do about the coal strike, he goes on a speaking tour in Massachusetts to campaign for his fellow Republicans. As he heads out on his tour, 
disaster strikes. Jared Cohen is the author of Accidental Presidents. In September of 1902, as he's driving through Titsfield, Massachusetts, a trolley pummels into his horse-drawn carriage full speed. TR is flown about 30 to 40 feet in the air and lands face down on the ground. Everybody who is watching this assumes the president is dead. Miraculously, Roosevelt survives the carriage wreck. His face is bruised and cut, and his left leg is so severely injured he will spend a month in a wheelchair. His speaking tour is put on hold. One of his Secret Service men is killed. Roosevelt's bruised, his glasses are broken, and his leg is very badly damaged. He has serious surgery. And amidst this turmoil, the cold strike drags on. While he's sitting there recovering from the carriage accident, the need for some sort of solution to the coal strike is becoming really urgent. The weather's beginning to get cold, and there's no coal that's been stored up for homes. Hospitals and schools are closing down. There are riots in the streets, commandeering coal carts. There's real panic in the air. But there was no precedent for a president getting involved in a strike of this magnitude. No constitutional right to do so. He was told by his advisors, if you get involved and you fail, as you are likely to fail, then the responsibility will be yours. But he could not sit on the sidelines. Roosevelt has to do something. And so he decides in early October to do what no president has done before, which is to say, look, rational people can come to rational agreements. So I'm going to bring in the union representatives to the White House and the coal mine owners to the White House, and we're going to hash it out. He writes to one Republican senator, insisting, I am able to do all the important work, like that affecting the coal strike, just exactly as well as if I were on two legs. In that room, you have John Mitchell, president of the United Mine Workers, speaking for the union. Mitchell started working the mines himself at around 10 years old. Then you have George Bear, president of the Reading Railroad, speaking for the industry. Bear actually said that God had appointed him and people like him to determine the destination of our country, and unions were unnecessary. Roosevelt begins the meeting asking, is it all right if I have a stenographer take notes? Both sides agree to this, but not much else. The meeting ends in terrible failure, and Roosevelt's very disappointed. However, he reads the notes, and he realized that the attitude of the coal barons was obstinate, and the attitude of the union guy was willing to come forth to some sort of solution. T.R. wonders if he can shift public opinion by making these meeting notes public. So he sends the transcript to the government printing office, turning the Stettos notes into a pamphlet, which is then ready by midnight to give to the press the next morning so that it can be in all their newspapers. And it changes the public mood. Now they felt much more sympathy for the strikers. They felt angry at the arrogance on the part of the coal operators. So angry that violence erupts at union protests. Coal and iron police private guards came to the scene and... Nocentro is kind of a melee of 
rock and stone throwing, shots fired. Roosevelt has staked out new territory by siding with the unions, and now he decides to take an even bigger risk. Lincoln really was, for TR, a hero. And in the biggest crisis of his own presidency, the coal strike, Roosevelt somehow managed to read this multi-volume work by Nicolay and Hay on Abraham Lincoln, and he took solace from the notion that there were times when Lincoln had to break precedent, where he had to act without the law being on his side, and it was necessary because he had to be a steward of the people. And so Roosevelt decides, I'm going to send troops in to take over the mines and operate them on behalf of the people. I think he can say to himself, Lincoln would do this if he needed to. Lincoln did what it took to save the Union, including at times strain the Constitution to a breaking point. That was Roosevelt's philosophy. It's important to have a Constitution, but he always said the Constitution is not as important as the people. A lot of his negotiations involve a threat that's either implied or specifically stated. And in this case, he specifically stated it. He said, if you all don't agree, well, then maybe the federal government is going to have to nationalize the mines and force the workers back as federal employees. But before setting those plans in motion, Roosevelt decides to try his one remaining option. And that was to turn to John Pierpont Morgan, the man who he was fighting in the courts, but also the only man, really, who had any influence over the coal mine owners. In Pennsylvania, the Reading Railroad owned the mines, and guess who owned the Reading Railroad? J.P. Morgan. So he had the authority to help settle the strike. Morgan was starting to understand that there could be unrest, that there could be disorder, that there could be chaos, and that that would be bad for business and bad for the country. So Roosevelt sent Elihu Root to New York and on board Morgan's yacht, they drafted an agreement that created an independent commission to mediate a settlement to the strike. The owners agree to it. The union agrees to it. The coal strike comes to an end. The hospitals open again, the schools are open, people have warmth for the winter, and the country loves it. They love the idea that their president has intervened on behalf of the people, and he's a hero. In 1903, building on his success in the coal strike, he decides to take on big business again and create a government agency that will have powers to look into the books of private industry so that he will understand if there are corporations that are not playing by the rules of the game that are violating antitrust. This is a big deal. The Wall Street Journal later publishes a summary of Roosevelt's call against, quote, gross and corrupting extravagance, the misuse of swollen fortunes, the indifference to law, the growth of graft, and the abuses of great corporate power. Roosevelt writes, I am amused at the short-sighted folly of the very wealthy men, and I am deeply concerned to find out how large a proportion of them stand for what is fundamentally corrupt and dishonest. After taking on the railroads and coal, T.R. cites a new target. Theodore Roosevelt always maintained that there were good businesses and bad businesses who used terrible anti-competitive tactics. John D. Rockefeller was one of the worst 
most ruthless businessman, his company, Standard Oil, had accrued an empire by literally burning the competitors down or by buying them out or running them out. Roosevelt's a fighter, he's always a fighter. Now the fight is escalating. He had taken on J.P. Morgan earlier. Now he's taking on J.D. Rockefeller, perhaps the biggest character in this battle, the Goliath to David. John D. Rockefeller was the world's first billionaire, and his influence knows no bounds. One of the reasons why Roosevelt says these powerful people are dangerous is they are meddling in politics. They have the power and the money to buy state legislatures, to buy senators. And so Roosevelt, at a certain point, learns that John D. Rockefeller is allegedly doing just that. He's using his power and his wealth to influence members of Congress. Roosevelt tries to expose Rockefeller's shenanigans in order to illustrate that this is the undemocratic activities that unchecked big business is capable of. As Congress was discussing the bill, Roosevelt was getting pretty frustrated. But Roosevelt was masterful when it came to the press. He was friends with lots of journalists, and he would invite a few selected reporters in for a kind of strange ritual he had to talk while he was being shaved. Americans in the late 19th century grow increasingly worried about the power of big business. People like John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, and many of these other industrialists, critics call them robber barons, are seen as really dangerous people because of the power that they possess. And so when Roosevelt comes to office, he, he's aware of this growing concern, and he decides to do something about it. In the early days of 1903, Roosevelt brings a bill before the Congress to create a Bureau of Corporations, which would have the power to regulate big business. He wasn't against big business. He was simply against big business if it didn't play by the rules of the game. But there's a huge outcry on the part of business the corporations start sending telegrams to the Republican senators, kill this bill, you must do that, you owe us, you are our party. So Roosevelt uses Rockefeller as the symbol of big business. The Bureau of Corporations bill is in real danger. TR struggles to find a way to get it passed in Congress. Then he realizes that while he can't show evidence of Rockefeller's corrupting powers, the newspapers might be able to convince the public of this behavior just by writing about it. Roosevelt likes to hold press briefings by inviting reporters in while he is being shaved. So that's what he does. T.R. complains that he can't get his bill passed with so many senators in Rockefeller's pocket. He quips, Well, you know, when they call the role at Senate, certain senators don't know whether to answer present or not guilty, and he leaks a few names. The story makes front page news. So the story comes out, and then no self-respecting senator is able to vote against that bill, fearing that they're gonna look like they're just slavishly under the control of J.D. Rockefeller. So they vote for the bill, and it passes. Roosevelt has this vision that government needs to act as a regulatory agent, as an agent that will make sure that Businesses do what businesses are supposed to do. Roosevelt understands that he has to educate and shape public opinion. He uses the bully pulpit, which he names. He's the first one to call it the bully pulpit. You know, and bully doesn't mean bully, mean. It means wonderful, splendid, a great platform that the president has. Roosevelt used it to get his message out that the presidency and the federal government is about ensuring that people have a fair shot 
This is a new idea. Previous generations did not feel or expect that the government would look out for them. The sea change in the idea that, yes, the federal government is responsible for the individual American citizen. That is a vast change from only a few years before. And he changed American foreign policy as well. Roosevelt felt Britain, France, the United States, the great powers of the world should divide up taking care of the world. And for America, having a passageway from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean was of paramount importance. Opening a passageway through the Americas to link East and West would create new opportunities just where Roosevelt wanted them, right at home. The Panama Canal was a priority for Theodore Roosevelt for military reasons. Secondly, it would be incredible for American commerce. He wouldn't have to go all the way around. It was a shortcut. Just travel between the eastern coast and the western coast of the United States would be cut by 8,000 miles. Literally cutting a month off of travel time had major national security implications for a young nation that's just stepped on the scene as a world power. But the proposition was not without complications. The French had tried to dig a Panama Canal from 1881 to 1889, and it's an abject failure. So it sits there, just a ruined shell of what could have been. For Theodore Roosevelt, this is an opportunity. Panama at the time was not an independent country. Panama was part of Colombia. The Panamanians had risen in revolt every few years against Colombian dominance. So to build a canal, you had to conclude a treaty with Colombia. But Colombia understood that this was its greatest asset in the world. How much is the United States willing to pay for this? So Colombia rejects the treaty. Roosevelt goes ballistic. They are highwaymen, they're bandits. Roosevelt's interest in the Panama Canal is twofold. One is it's a monumental undertaking. 20 years earlier, the French had tried to build a canal and had failed. But for Roosevelt, in his sense of American destiny, said, we have to build the canal. And this also fit into his geopolitical vision, which is that his presidency would be the one that would announce to the world and make it real that America was not just an Atlantic power, it is both an Atlantic and now a Pacific power. It's clear that Colombia is not going to cooperate with Roosevelt's vision. T.R. realizes that the partner he needs for this deal is actually Panama. But for that to be possible, Panama would need to become an independent country. Now a plan is hatched that Panama will once again declare its independence, will rise up in revolt against Bogota in Colombia, the USS Nashville will be sent down to prevent any Colombian troops from interfering in the uprising. Panamanians declare their independence. About one hour after that's done, the United States recognizes Panama as an independent republic. And then they turned around and signed a deal granting the United States control of this Panama Canal zone. And construction got underway. And one of Theodore Roosevelt's proudest moments and one of the greatest pictures that he loves is he's sitting in this white linen tropical suit, but at the controls of one of the steam shovels digging the canal. Now, in fact, it took 11 years until the canal was open. And Roosevelt was long out of the White House by then, but he still considered it his baby. The building of the Panama Canal is one of the most extraordinary technological and engineering achievements of, of the early 
20th century. It touts some of the great innovations of the Industrial Revolution. And he really chose to make this a pillar and anchor of his foreign policy, to have the U.S. be the sole country to assert influence in the Western Hemisphere. The canal is absolutely integral to that. It is the fulfillment of the United States becoming a global power. Theodore Roosevelt builds it and then ensures that it's under United States control, knowing that he has a world-class Navy to enforce it. Diplomacy is made possible because you are strong and powerful. This is famously the basis of Theodore Roosevelt's foreign policy. The doctrine he describes as speak softly and carry a big stick. And if we look at how world events play out for the next century, the Panama Canal is still a key piece of terrain, of global terrain, and he makes that happen. It's an amazing meetup of man and moment. Roosevelt has a very different vision of what the president should do, what the president can do, and that's really going to mark his presidency. Roosevelt's next challenge is to formally win the office he's been serving in for the last three years. So before the 1904 election, Roosevelt wants to take the pulse of the American people, not simply to produce a majority for him, but to help him knit the country together. And what that meant was that he wanted to listen to their concerns. And how does he do that? He takes a nine-week transcontinental train trip. He goes on the most ambitious presidential tour in history up to that time. He went 14,000 miles to 26 states. He gave hundreds of speeches. He had a seven-car special train. It was kind of like the Air Force One on railroad wheels. And everywhere he stops, he listens to the local reporters, to the local officials. What's bothering you? What can I do? What should we do differently? And then he also wants to talk to them. This is where he's using the bully pulpit to give the same message every stop along the way. These train trips were his way to bring people together on the basis of fundamental fairness for the rich and the poor, for the capitalist and the wage worker. A square deal. T.R. says, We should treat each man on his worth and merits as a man. And we should see that each man is given a square deal because he is entitled to no more and because he deserves no less. The working man should be treated as partners by the large corporations. And they should come together. Thousands of people yelling and screaming like he's a rock star. The actual notion of the president as a steward of the American people, that was new then. When Roosevelt talked about his square deal, he meant this. The government will ensure that the cards you're dealt are fair. It's up to you to play them to the best of your ability. And the effort pays off. On election day, the people T.R. has turned out for across the country now turn out for him. When T.R. wins his victory in 1904, it's not just a victory, it's a decisive victory. He won the largest popular majority in American history till then. He is absolutely elated because he can now say, I have won the mandate of the people, a great endorsement of my first term, and now I'm really president of the United States. But, In his excitement over the outcome, he makes the mistake that will haunt him for the rest of his life. He just blurts it out. He's not going to seek re-election in 1908. People can't believe he said it. Reporters can't believe he said it. Edith can't believe he said it. Republicans can't believe he said it. It was an impulsive gesture on the night that he won the election. He made a mistake. 
perhaps the biggest of his career. Boy, did he come to regret it. Toward the end of his second term, because he had said, I'm not going to run for a third term. Roosevelt started thinking, I need a successor, someone who can carry on the Roosevelt tradition. TR handed Taft this nomination in 1908, thinking, oh, this is mini-me. I'm going to set him up for continuing my policy. Well, that was a mistake, a big mistake. So as Roosevelt is touring the country, drumming up support in 1910, he is constantly thinking about why did he cut himself off from the presidency and could he find his way back? And slowly but surely, he begins to develop the idea that he can run for president in 1912 and that he must run for president in 1912. TR was like a war horse smelling battle. That's next time on Making Teddy. Making Teddy is a podcast from the History Channel. Produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Eli Lara, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. Ben Dickstein, the senior producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Hannah Leibowitz Lockhart is the associate producer. Max Michael Miller edited and mixed this episode. The television series, Theodore Roosevelt, was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel.